Committee on Climate Change's forecast, its net zero balance pathway shows significant oil and gas consumption even in 2050. So if that is not being produced by us, it means it'll be produced by someone else. The stack emissions for wood pellet biomass are higher than the stack emissions for coal. It's the best thing that Drax could do for the planet would be to go back to burning coal, <laughs> other than closing altogether. Nuclear, to my mind, is the most credible solution to that challenge. Um, and partly because it, it fits in perfectly with the way our grids are designed. Last month, the government introduced a new oil and gas bill that will mandate new annual applications for offshore licences. The government said that this will help boost the industry, lower prices and support energy security. But critics, including former ministers like Chris Gidmore and Alex Sharma, have warned that new law is inconsistent with net zero. This debate also raises broader questions about Britain's energy policy, which at times really does feel stuck between lofty decarbonisation goals and concerns about consumer prices. Welcome back to the IA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash and I'm the IA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, should Britain allow new oil and gas? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by Catherine Porter, the founder of WhatLogic, uh, as well as an independent energy consultant and commentator. Catherine has quite an extensive background in the city, as well as expertise in electricity, gas and oil markets. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming along. So let's start with the, the kind of latest news uh, in the sector that's grabbed a lot of attention. Why is the government putting forward legislation to mandate these annual oil and gas license rounds? What, what does that actually mean in practice? Well, I think they're trying to signal a commitment to ongoing um, activity within the North Sea. I am, this is sort of trying to counteract the effects of the windfall tax, which have obviously been very negative for investor sentiment in the sector. And I'm, and I'm not sure it's really going to succeed in that regard because the impact of the windfall tax is quite punitive from a financial perspective for these operators. But nevertheless, I think it's the sign that the government wants people uh, to still operate in the region and uh, to signal that it's open for business effectively. And some people have pointed out that usually there are annual or more or less annual license rounds and that this, practically speaking, doesn't make too much of a difference. Well, exactly. I think it's more to do with sending messaging of a, of a commitment, firm commitment to the sector. But what they really need to do to show commitment to the sector is to remove the windfall tax. Yes, yeah, so this this was this really big debate, or now almost was like a, a few years ago, where the, the government for a long time said, no, we're not going to put in a windfall tax. That would be a terrible idea for investment. And then uh, I think it was just back, in, back in Boris Johnson's era said, actually, no, we will introduce a windfall tax. And obviously that's been pulled forward by Rishi. How, how is that currently having such a large impact? Well, first of all, it doesn't impact really the people it was aimed at. So it was introduced really as a populist measure to address public concern over energy company profits. Mm. Now, a lot of those concerns actually were to do with either big oil or, um, well, yeah, primarily big oil, um, to be perfectly honest. And most of those people are not earning very much of their revenue in UK waters anyway. It's a shell and BP. Shell and BP, yeah, like yeah. 5 to 7% of their global turnover. The people who are really active in the North Sea are the independents. Now, if you put a headline, you know, targeting harbour um, with uh, a big tax, well, most people have never heard of harbour and they're the largest um, operator in the North Sea. And in fact, they and a lot of the other companies, uh, first of all, 
they've said that these that, that the windfall tax is having a very significantly negative impact on their finances. But also now they're starting to reevaluate projects and they're starting to refocus their activities away from the UK. And one of the things that we're seeing as a result of that is things like rigs moving out of the region. Now that's really bad news because once the rigs have gone, they won't come back. And there's a finite number of these things. So if they're going to go off to West Africa or the Gulf or wherever it is that they see better opportunities, it will be really hard to bring them back because the UK continental shelf um, is, is more of a technical challenge. You know, the easy portions of that geography have already been exploited. That's not to say there aren't still good opportunities and good finds there, but it's that bit more difficult. And so the government putting these hurdles, particularly in the form of the windfall tax, um, is really a barrier to that. And there's a huge contrast between the way the UK is approaching this and the way Norway is approaching mm. its activity in the North Sea. Um, it, it's chalk and cheese. And obviously the Norwegians, you know, they actually put tax breaks in place rather than additional taxes. So th this is all uh, in, I suppose, two major contexts. One context is, uh, although it's kind of stabilized quite a bit, the massive increase in global gas prices after Russia's invasion of Ukraine mm. and this question about um, domestic security, but uh, energy security. On the other hand, though, there are those, as I introduced at the start of this podcast, who say, actually, it's time for the UK to cease all new oil and gas production. But some people might go even further and say, we should cease all current oil and gas production. We, we should um, immediately or in very quick succession moved to re renewables. Um, the, the, the view of the, I think they often quote something like the climate change committee who say new oil and gas production is not consistent with the UK's net zero ambitions. What I'm do you sorry, make of those kind of arguments? If you look at the um, Committee on Climate Change's forecast, its net zero balanced pathway shows significant oil and gas consumption even in 2050. So if that is not being produced by us, it means it'll be produced by someone else. So if you're producing yourself, you control the production emissions and the wider production environmental standards. Um, and of course, you avoid the shipping emissions. Um, so it's better for the environment if you're going to be using oil and gas to produce it as close to the um, end market as possible. Now, then people say, oh, yes, but we lack refining capacity. That's a slightly different problem. But still, it's much better to produce it here where we control the production emissions than it is to, to buy it in from elsewhere. And one of the problems with the way that the environmental lobbies attack big oil is that if they start selling out of their operating licenses, who's going to buy that up? It'll be less experienced operators who don't operate to such high standards. So again, that's going to be detrimental to the climate. The reality is we're going to still use hydrocarbons for decades to come. We're going to still use hydrocarbons in the energy sector for decades to come. You know, you mentioned switching to renewables. Well, that's not viable for a lot of countries. Um, unless you've got geothermal or hydro, you cannot build energy security around renewables alone. And it also ignores all the other non-energy uses. Like the entire medical sector is founded on petrochemicals. Like modern, modern medicine is based on petrochemicals. Most medicines, most hospital equipment is made from oil-derived products. We're nowhere near being able to substitute those with something else. You definitely can't substitute that with renewables, <laughs> right? So th these arguments are just nonsense. We're going to use oil and gas still for many decades to come. And if we want to control the production emissions and, and have that in the cleanest and most environmentally sustainable way possible, we should control as much of that chain as we possibly can. Um, 
and do it in the cleanest possible way. And the other thing is if you try and force a transition from the supply side, all you're going to do is push up prices. Yeah, if, if, if you still have the demand in the UK economy for gas, it's either it has to come from the North Sea or it has to come from somewhere else, be that Russia or Qatar. Exactly. Or you know, often, the, in fact, the case is uh, US shell gas, which we're choosing not to um, get at in the UK either, of course. Um, I suppose then the question becomes, what is the role of wind and solar here? Because I think the wind and solar advocates will say, well, the costs have come down substantially um, to create um, wind turbines to, to put in place solar. Uh, it is becoming, if you look at contracts difference, it's become much cheaper over time compared to what it might be in the past. And therefore, renewables have a very strong role to play and, and can, to some extent, replace fossil fuels. Well, no, because a lot of that's just smoke and mirrors. Now, yes, with solar, costs have come down significantly, but solar isn't that useful in Britain. Until we come up with seasonal storage, solar is, is just a sideshow because at your peak annual energy demand, you have no solar because it's at night time. And, you know, it's bizarre how often you need to remind people that there's no solar energy at night, but still, nevertheless. Wind, wind costs haven't fallen dramatically. If you, if you look at the data, most wind farms are incorporated as SPVs, which means they file accounts at companies' house. And because they don't employ staff, um, their accounts show really pretty clearly what their capex and opex um, are. And hey, you tell, can, tell, tell us what the capex and opex mean. Uh, capital context. expenditure and operating expenditure. Yeah. And you have to make some adjustments because some people have slightly different accounting rules. Um, but you can, if you look at those data, you can see quite clearly that this narrative of falling costs hasn't been true for quite some time. And in fact, in the last couple of years, you've seen co a cost reversal. Now, people are saying, oh, yes, CFD prices have come down a lot. Well, first of all, they're still far and away higher than the short run marginal cost of generating wind power. Um, so when people think of, oh, wind is cheap, it is never going to be as cheap as people think. You know, all oh, the wind is free. Yes, but you cannot ever recover your capital cost if you sell your product at next to zero. But we're not even anywhere close to that. AR4, which was the CFD round, the one before last, um, appeared to be a success. You know, they entered all these contracts, but only two of the projects have gone ahead and taken their final investment decision and got moved forward into construction. Some have been cancelled and some haven't made a decision either way. The following year, there were no bids at all for offshore wind projects. And so a message from all of the developers was, oh, well, the price has to be higher to account for all these increased costs. Now, on the one hand, you have a government saying, oh, well, you know, we're providing subsidies to wind because we need to prime the pump for an immature technology and these subsidies will eventually ta taper to zero. And on the other hand, you've got an industry saying, we definitely can't survive unless you pay our subsidies. And not only that, you need to increase the subsidies. And in addition to all of that, we've seen the turbine manufacturers losing billions of pounds a year. And these losses predate COVID. They started in 2019. So when people say, oh, it's because of COVID, because of the Ukraine war, that is a contributing factor, but it was not the original cause. These losses started building up beforehand. And so you've effectively had a kind of Ponzi scheme within the wind sector, where on the one hand, you've had this narrative of falling costs, but it hasn't been supported by the data. And eventually it all falls down. And that's what we've seen. And it's not just in the UK that these auctions have failed. It's been all around the world. There have been failed um, auctions in the US. You've had projects cancelled because they 
people succeeded in an auction, but then they couldn't get an enhancement in the economics after the fact. Um, you had in Germany, they reduced massively the target and even then they failed to meet, meet it. This is true all over the place. Wind farm costs are not falling and they're not cheap and they're never going to be cheap. It is The other issue of cost there that isn't often accounted for in all these calculations is the intermittency cost of putting um, additional load into the system that isn't always there, right? So which isn't accounted for. The cost that people think about when they say wind is cheap is the wholesale price. But you have a much gig bigger gap between the wholesale price and the retail price for renewables than you do for conventional generation. And it's not just the effect of intermittency. It's also the, um, so the intermittency is kind of the balancing effect. It's the short term. Um, you need issue. to turn something else then on in order also, to compensate. When well, it, it's how you manage your, um, maintain your frequency at 50 hertz plus or minus 1% in real time. And we've seen those balancing costs increase by billions of pounds a year. You also have the issue of you can go two, three weeks at a time with very low wind output. And therefore, you need to have entire power stations on standby that are not wind to come online when that happens. So you basically have to build twice as much capacity, either additional generational storage and long duration storage practically doesn't exist. Like the best batteries are still only about four hours. There's some new technologies being developed that might get to 100 hours, but you need seasons, not a couple of days. So at the moment, you have to build, you have to pay subsidies. In, in Britain, that's to gas power stations to be built and be online and be available. So you're paying your extra balancing, you're paying for all this backup capacity, and then you have a huge additional grid bill because you're going from a grid where you have large lumps of generation that are pretty easy to connect to very dispersed distributed sources of generation, which requires a lot more cabling. And so there's a huge cost to that as well. And again, billions of pounds in the UK of new grid infrastructure that's required to support all of these renewables. So all of that, even in, first, in the first instance, is expensive. And you can see if you look at, for example, if you plotted a chart of um, end customer electricity prices from the beginning of the century and, um, and, and wholesale prices from the beginning of the century, you would see that there's been a steady increase in end customer prices um, and that the wholesale price has kind of wiggled around and done some other thing. And it wasn't really until September 2021 that the wholesale price really drove the retail price because it went up so much. But otherwise, that, that uh, relationship between the two had really broken down. And in August 2021, the wholesale component was less than half of the retail bill. So I suppose the, the question here for renewables then is really about storage. Is there any hope in storage? I mean, you've, you've kind of said batteries aren't there yet. Are there other forms of storage that could potentially provide the stopgap that could, could make it all a little bit more viable? So I don't think you're ever going to get there with chemical batteries. I think they're only ever going to play at the margin and provide frequency support. Um, I don't think you're going to get even two weeks out of chemical batteries. And the trouble is that with these types of technologies, it requires a large amount of material. So you have to look at the whole supply chain. And again, this is also an issue for all the grid. You know, you've got to dig a huge amount more copper out of the ground to meet all of those needs. And that's also environmentally harmful, but it's extremely expensive. And it mm. takes 10 years to develop a new copper mine. There's not enough copper mines in existence at the moment to meet the anticipated demand for all of this. Um, in terms of other forms of storage, 
Um, we might be able to develop a little bit more hydro. That's probably not long enough duration here in Britain, given the nature of our geology. Um, probably the most interesting options are going to be something like um, cryogenic or compressed air storage. And I think thermal storage technologies could have some good potential, but they're le a lot less developed and further away from commercialization. People sometimes talk about hydrogen as a potential storage. Yeah, I mean, the problem with hydrogen, it's like the least suitable element you could think of. <laughs> I mean, if you had a checklist of all the things you didn't want in an element that you were going to use for that purpose, hydrogen pretty much checks off all those boxes. It has, it's got the smallest molecules of anything. They're tiny. They escape through everywhere. So and so containment loss, yeah. for, for storage purposes is extremely difficult. Then also moving it around is really hard. The losses you get moving hydrogen around in a pipe system are 10 times bigger than the losses you get with methane. And methane losses around 3%. So you're going to lose a third pretty much with hydrogen. So the, the cost of that will be enormous. And people say, oh, yes, but you're going to generate it using surplus wind. Well, I don't really believe that. I don't believe that you will be able to generate it with surplus wind. Um, and you're going to be competing directly with electricity. So I don't really understand how the economics of that are going to add up. So another, I suppose, um, input into the system in order to enable less intimidancy is, of course, biomass or wood chipping. <laughs> this is the uh, famous Drax mm. conversion of coal-fired um, power stations to wood pellet fired um, that involves basically cutting down trees in North America, putting them on ships, sending them over to the UK. My, they like, don't just do that as. They cut them down. They have to um, convert them into small pellets and they have to dry them. So every step in that process requires a large amount of energy. And then they put them on ships powered with bunker fuel, which is the dirtiest, filthiest bit of the crag, the most highly polluting part of the hydrocarbon um, sort of chain that you have. Um, and then they ship it all the way over to Yorkshire to set fire to it. And and my colleague uh, Chris Snowden in a recent uh, briefing paper for us just highlighted the, the absurdity that it, when you put that process all together, it's probably worse when it comes to carbon emissions uh, than even coal is. Well, no, it's worse in the power station. Before you even consider the supply chain, the emission, the stack emissions for wood pellet biomass are higher than the stack emissions for coal. It's the shame. best thing that Drax could do for the planet would be to go back to burning coal, <laughs> other than closing altogether. That would be the best. You know, if it was, if was going to stay open and the choice was wood pellet biomass or coal, coal is a massively better option. And the thing is, if they want to plant some trees to offset the emissions, there's nothing stopping them doing that. Anybody can go and plant trees. And and But of course, the irony here is, and the reason why they get away with it and they get subsidised massively for it is because the carbon emission accounting rules mean that it's counted where it's cut down rather than where it's it's burned. Yeah, but it's just total nonsense. And it's, it's much worse outcome for the people of Yorkshire because their air quality is definitely worse burning wood pellets than it would be burning coal. So it would be much more environmentally sustainable for Drax to go back to coal. So so far, this has been, I think, quite a, a saddening and depressing conversation <laughs> about uh, poo-pooing basically every source of energy. But of course, there's, there's one we haven't talked about yet, which is um, nuclear. And I'm wondering mm. where, where you think that the government recently released a, a nuclear roadmap. There's, there's a lot of rhetoric, at least, about boosting the UK's nuclear sector. I'm wondering what, what, what you think nuclear has in, in the future, in particular, accepting the need to, to decarbonize um, the, the energy sector and have greener energy as well as have reliable and, and secure energy. So nuclear, to my mind, is the most credible solution to that challenge. 
um, and partly because it, it fits in perfectly with the way our grids are designed. So it requires the least amount of disruption to, the, to our existing way of doing things. And the least amount of disruption means the least amount of cost and the least threat to energy security. I think that the government's not being um, ambitious enough, though this roadmap isn't really a roadmap in the sense that anybody would recognise if you looked at a definition of a roadmap. Um, and it's, it's just, it, it lacks ambition. What the government really needs to do is it needs to, first of all, put its own money on the table in a more comprehensive way than it has done to date. It's messed around for a quarter of a century with in incentive schemes, the CFD, the regulated asset-based model. All of that has generated precisely one project, which is proving very troublesome to deliver. And we can't afford to wait. By the end of this decade, we will have periods of zero nuclear on the system based on the current schedule. So, so I suppose critics of nuclear, I mean, uh, first, in the first instance, there'll be the, well, isn't it just too risky to have nuclear? But and I don't think that's particularly adds up considering that nuclear's history's safety record is extremely good. It's also nuclear and safety and, and solar have the lowest number of deaths per unit of energy generated. And for the two of them that they're so low, they're, they're in the error margin of the calculation. Um, on the other hand, though, I think that the concern about it just being outrageously expensive does seem to, to call to me that the government has just put a huge amount of money into the sector repeatedly and we've gotten very little out. It's doing it in a very inefficient way. I think one of the problems the government has is that in pursuit of the perfect solution, it's ignoring good solutions. And by doing that, it's allowing cost ex escalation. It's much better to get a good outcome today rather than a terrible outcome tomorrow because you are hoping for a perfect outcome. And one of our issues as well is that we add cost unnecessarily. Our regulatory regime in this country um, it differs from other people's regulatory regimes in ways that, is, that are basically difficult to justify, and that adds a lot of cost. Can you go into that? So, so how do we regulate nuclear more so than other countries? Well, so at Hinkley, for example, um, they've got requirements to put in place sort of analog control systems along that would be redundant, for example. You know, so normally you're operating on a digital basis, and um, that obviously is expensive to do. If you look at the way that the AGRs, the existing nuclear fleet, is being regulated, um, the Office for Nuclear Regulation is saying that, that the graphite control rods have to be, all of them, 100% of them, have to be capable of being inserted, even in a, an earthquake 10 times bigger than the biggest one we've ever had, despite the fact you only need 15% of them to end the reaction and you have a couple of other backup methods of ending the reaction. So, I mean, requiring 100% of anything is quite hard to justify, but when you only need 15% to require 100%, and that hurdle is incredibly hard to meet. And that's really why Hinkley Point B had to close early. And so unless the ONR changes its approach, we will lose the existing fleet before Hinkley Point C opens, Hinkley Point C, it's not just regulatory issues that are causing the problem, and some of them are responses to changes in circumstance. So since EDF started developing the European pressurised water reactor, 9-11 happened, and then suddenly mm. everybody wanted reactors to be um, resistant to aeroplane strikes. But that had to be then retrofitted into the design. 
So I think what, what we need to do is look at places where it's being done more successfully. And the only place that's really true um, in, in a sort of friendly country context, I don't think we're going to look at China or Russia in this regard, is in South Korea. And KEPCO is about to open its sixth, um, no, sorry, its eighth um, reactor, modern reactor. It's got four open now in South Korea and a fourth one about to open in UAE. And they've been delivering these on time and on budget with eight-year construction times. And I think they said something like maybe it would take 10 years here in Britain because our processes are slower. <laughs> now, they don't have uh, regulatory certification here. And the government has said things like, well, we want to leverage the, um, you know, we want to leverage the regulatory processes in trusted countries. This is the perfect opportunity to demonstrate that commitment. Because the KEPCO design has been certified in the US, obviously in UAE and South Korea. <clears throat> you know, South Korea and the US, I think the EU has also certified a version of the technology. These, you know, these hot Mickey Mouse regulators, if it's good enough for the NRC, it should be good enough for the ONR. And, and then, uh, so we have the kind of South Korean reactor option. There's also a lot of talk, uh, particularly in the UK, about small um, modular nuclear reactors. Do you think they have much potential contribution to the, the future of well, nuclear? I I do think they have a potential, but it's this. That's the sort of mid twenty thirties conversation, and people people tend to talk about this as small modular reactors instead of large reactors. That is not the conversation we need to be having. We need to start building new big reactors today, and what we really need is for the government to pay for it. Ideally, you know, if it was me, I would sign a contract with Kepco and say, right, we want to buy five or six reactors. Here's the delivery schedule that we're looking at and literally put the money on the table for the first two because the government is struggling to get private investment in. And the, there's a variety of reasons for that. I think after building a couple and demonstrating the commitments of rebuilding supply chains, you would get that investment coming in. I am, but also I'm pretty confident that they'd be able to refinance after construction, uh, probably as a profit as well. So this would be the quickest and most efficient way. Yes, we should still continue to look at small modular reactors, but with the best will in the world, they're not a 2020s conversation. And we just can't afford to wait for those to reach commercial readiness before we start moving forward with new projects. I, I get kind of a, a little bit nervous about this idea of the government kind of stepping in to, to buy these nuclear reactors. It, it, there seems like there's a big risk of I suppose project failure and 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 you know making a mistake in terms of central planning here is is there not something I don't know I suppose a wiser path ahead would be address the nuclear regulatory issues that are holding things back address the planning system issues that are holding things back put in place a carbon tax that will ensure that you know nuclear is relatively speaking the you know the the, the cheaper energy source. Um, deal with issues uh, the way the energy market is structured. But all of those will take a long time to deliver, particularly the way the government goes about things. So even if those were good things to do, and I don't think a carbon tax is really going to be a good thing to do, I think it's just going to make stuff very, very expensive for consumers. But I think that, yes, we need to sort out the regulatory and planning issues, um, and the government has to do that anyway. But it's not, you're not, I don't think you're going to get that investor confidence um, really now other than through demonstrating that this stuff works and the only way you can demonstrate it is by getting a couple of things uh, of new reactors built because the investors I speak to they have 
they have two issues. One is that they have a generic fear of nuclear. It's a little bit like their fear of AI. <laughs> it's not really based in any real risk analysis. Um, they're just kind of a bit freaked out by nuclear. Um, and this is partly, I think, to do with them not really doing the work. Um, and I say to them, look, you guys, you're risk professionals. Your entire job is um, understanding, measuring and mitigating risk. So don't be telling me that you're too scared of this, right? Just work the problem like you'd work any other problem. But the other issue they have is that, you know, we, we just, it, there's a lack of trust in the way the sector is operated. Um, there's a lack of trust in regulatory and policy stability. And so the only way you're going to overcome that is by proving it. And so, but then I don't think the government shouldn't be sitting there, you know, with its pencil out working on the design or anything. It should be going to Kepco and saying, right, we essentially want a turnkey solution and we want you to come and train our people. So bring your workers in, train our workforce, help to build up our supply chain here in the UK. And then that will allow our future projects to be more developed using local skills and, and technology. But I think the government is going to need to prime the pump with the money. And also, we don't expect the private sector to fund physical security. Like Nobody's trying to subcontract the army or the police. Energy security doesn't necessarily have to, have to be viewed differently. Well, Catherine Porter, thank you so much for a fascinating uh, discussion, very wide-ranging from new oil and gas through to issues with renewables and, and as well as thinking about the future of nuclear. For those interested in, in following your work, um, I, I do recommend visiting the, the What Logic blog, absolutely fascinating analysis. And for those who are interested uh, in this podcast, who, who are enjoying it, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or you can visit ia.org.uk for more information about our work.